Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. We took a break from our study in the book of Nehemiah, so we're going back there. That was a hint. We're going back to the book of Nehemiah, so if you have your Bibles and you want to get them open, get them turned on, click whatever it is you need to do to get uh, yourself in front of the Word of God, I would encourage you to do that right now. Uh, I hope you took advantage of the time out of Nehemiah uh, as we celebrated Advent, as we celebrated uh, the first Advent of Christ at Christmas, but also as we took that journey uh, of celebrating the return, the promised return of Jesus, His second his second Advent. I hope you took some time to do that. And, and maybe if you didn't this past Advent season, I, I hope that maybe your appetite was whetted to begin that as a journey. Um, every, every time uh, that December comes around, that month-long journey, because it's a beautiful one. Now, we're picking back up where we left off. We, we finished Nehemiah chapter 8. We're picking back up in Nehemiah chapter 9. Um, and so if you want to go ahead and make your way there. Um, this is a, a chapter in Scripture that years ago I did a Bible study written by Dr. Stedman. And it opened my eyes to something about repentance that I did not know. And it was a great blessing to me. And so I, I mean, so much of this comes from that Bible study that I did. Because at that time in life, I was thinking that repentance was mostly about, you know, dropping off a bad habit, turning away from something. And it didn't focus so much on turning back to something. It was just kind of dropping stuff off, if you would. You know, stuff that steals and kills and destroys you, your, your life. Um, but repentance, as we'll see in Nehemiah chapter 9, is as much, if maybe even not more, about what you're turning to. And so repentance has a kind of a double-pointed, if you would, uh, focus that I want us to look at today. Um, before, we, before we do that, I want to tell you a story about a, a, that I heard about a, a painter, a house painter, who experienced a great moment of repentance. Um, we'll just call him Pete, painter Pete. And uh, painter Pete was uh, known for oftentimes putting in the lowest bid uh, and winning contracts for painting because he was the lowest bidder. And it was suspected by other contractors, paint contractors, that that paint, Peter Paint, painter Pete, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled pepper, painter Pete was probably thinning his paint. They'd buy the paint before he took it onto a job site have some empty buckets, mix it up with some water, and then go out to the job site with it. And Painter Pete recently won a, uh, the, the contract to paint a large country Baptist church out in the country, the kind that had you know, a cemetery of its own, uh, that backed kind of right up to the building. And um, so uh, he, he, he got the contract, and he went and bought his paint the day before he was to start work. And like he always did, he thinned the paint. And uh, took it out to the job site, got out there early that next morning, and it was a beautiful day. You know, he got his equipment set up and started to painting. And he got about three-quarters of the way through the job on the exterior painting that he was doing. And this pop-up thunderstorm just came. And it was torrential rains and blowing wind. And so much of the work that he had done that day just started running down the side of the building. And Pete was still, he was still up on a ladder trying to get some of his equipment down when a loud clap of thunder startled him, causing him to fall backwards off his ladder. 
and he landed flat on his back right next to a tombstone. It knocked the breath out of him. He was gasping for breath, and he cried out, God, what, what do I do? And a voice from heaven boomed thunderously and said, repaint, repaint and thin no more. That was bad, wasn't it? Yep, I know. Just to get you primed for thinking about repentance here just a little bit. Now, we left our, our friends in Jerusalem in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, we left them there. They had rebuilt the wall. They, they had, remember, they had, had been in exile. God's people had been in exile. Many of them for about 70 years had been taken into exile by uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it had been prophesied by Jeremiah that their captivity would last at least 70 years. It did for many. Um, a group comes out later under the leadership of Nehemiah and probably about a 100-year mark uh, of captivity. And they go back into Jerusalem and they find it in a shambles. And part of what they do is they take on the task of rebuilding the wall. Now, the task had been tried several times and unsuccessfully, but this group does it. And they do it in a record amount of time because of the hand of God uh, and uh, 52 days, they rebuild the wall, and their city starts to be rebuilt and, and starts the rebuilding prosperity among God's people, and they celebrate. And God begins to build not only the city, but begins to build back into their spiritual lives. And they begin discovering things in their Old Testament scriptures that they had not done. And they, they discover the celebration of the tabernacles, or celebration of Festival of Booths. And they, they celebrate it for the first time in decades. Um, and, and God blesses them. And it's just an incredible uh, journey. And, and th their hearts are filled with the Word of God. And so they keep coming back for more. And uh, we picked that up uh, this morning uh, in the ninth chapter. Now, they've, they've kind of come out of that celebration. And we pick up, and I want to read verses, uh, starting in verse 1, if you would. Open your Bibles there, and I'm going to open mine. And put my glasses on so I can actually see this thing. It says this, verse 1. It says, now on the 24th day of this month... The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. And they stood in their place. Now, the first thing that I want you to see, and I, 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 I did this in reverse order, I, I forgot to... To, to go back and do this. But the first thing I want you to see is what repentance begins with. Repentance begins when we turn from blaming. When we turn from blaming. I, I want you to notice that what they did was, they, they, the Bible says they stood in their place. They confessed their sins. They even confessed the sins of earlier generations, their, their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, not to blame them, but because they understood the deep connection of how easy it is to fall back into the sins of your fathers, which they had done. And one of the things we'll see as we move through this is they become deeply aware of their own personal sin. And so the Bible tells us that they, they, they come out of this celebration of booze, and now they're in this kind of season of mourning and lamenting as they've come in, they've encountered the Word of God and what it caused them to, to live holy lives. And so they show up uh, for a time of repentance. And they show up uh, dressed in basically like burlap. 
stuff that's very uncomfortable, and they, they place ashes on their heads to, to outwardly symbolize the, the kind of the inner emptiness that they're, they're experiencing. And it says they confessed their sins and, and generations before them, and God began moving among them. And one of the things that uh, it, it said that they separated themselves from foreigners. Now, that, that was primarily, to me, was earlier in the journey, they kept blaming everything on the foreigners. You go back and you read the early chapters of Nehemiah, they keep pointing out everything that was, the foreigners were doing, what the foreigners were doing, what the foreigners were doing. And they, they didn't point out what they were doing. And this is a moment in time where now they're looking at their stuff and they're, they're, they're not putting the blame for everything on somebody else. They're looking at themselves and they're confessing their sin. And this great catalyst for a repentant heart really doesn't show up till we get to the end of the book. So I want us to run kind of to the end of the chapter and I, I want, to, want us to see a couple of things. Um, the, the first thing that I want us to see here is that repentance requires something else. And it requires that I'm, I connect the dots from my sin to my suffering. That there is a connection oftentimes, the, 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 the suffering that I'm enduring. Now, not always. Sometimes it's somebody else. But oftentimes there's suffering from my sin. There's always suffering uh, from sin. And verse 36 and 37 tells us what's causing them to mourn, what's kind of the catalyst for this day of, of repentance. Verse 36 says this, Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Now, I want you to notice something here. They're using some very personal pronouns. You're going to see it again as we will cycle back towards the end. But in the middle... There's a, different, a little bit different focus. And they have made a clear connection, we'll see, to their own sin and the condition of oppression and captivity that they're still experiencing. Even though they're back in their, their own capital city of Jerusalem, they made this deep connection between their sin and the suffering they were enduring. It reminds me of a story that, uh, about a pastor who was praying with a man. They were down front of the church at the altar, and, and they were praying together. And uh, the man was praying, uh, and it was a prayer that he got to, a part of his prayer. And the pastor had heard people pray this before. And this is what the man said. He said, Lord, clear away the cobwebs of my life. And the pastor immediately interrupted and said, and Lord, kill that spider. Because the pastor had watched lots of people pray, God, take this away, take this away, clear this away out of my life. And yet they wanted to still keep that what was drawing them back into sin. And, and he's saying, well, you need to get rid of that, God. That's what we need to go after. That's the source. Too often we want, we want to keep the source because we, it's comfortable and we, want to, we, we don't want to lose that opportunity possibly. We don't want to lose that feeling completely. We don't want to be completely cut off. And so too many times we ask God to forgive some sin without saying, God, kill the spider. Kill that which is building this in my life. You know, we live in a culture in, in America, a culture that recognizes its emptiness, cries out for a touch from God, cries out for something transcendent. 
I, I know from time to time I'll watch a, a, a YouTube of a concert, uh, a YouTube video of a concert that YouTube does, you, the, the, the group YouTube does. And there, one of the things that I'm amazed at is the way the crowd is seeking to worship something. There's a song that they do called, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Some of you are familiar with that song. And they're always, the, the crowd moves to this place. And you can see the desperation in the hearts of people. They're longing for something. In this prayer in Nehemiah, we see God's people longing for this movement of God. And the Bible tells us that they, they come together and they pray. And so what you're seeing in Nehemiah chapter 9, I don't know whether you know this or not, this is the longest prayer recorded in Scripture. Longest prayer, and it's a prayer of repentance. It's the longest prayer re- recorded in Scripture. They're fasting, they're weeping, they're crying out to, to God for mercy. And then I want you to notice something else. There is a balance that takes place in this prayer. And it's, it's a balance, and repentance requires this balance, if it's going to be rich and, and real for you. Repentance balances both confession and praise. Confession and praise. And this was the great freedom, if you would, or the great beauty about repentance that the Lord opened my eyes to in Nehemiah chapter 9. Watch this. It says in verse 3, they stood up in their place. They read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of the day, they did what? They made confession and they worshiped the Lord their God. They, They confessed their sin and they praised God. Friends, that is a massive kind of, uh, of, of difference of only thinking it's just turning away, from some, turning away from something. This was in the context, this turning away was in the context of this rhythm of confession and praise, confession and worship. And you're going to see that rhythm throughout this entire prayer, this kind of back and forthness. And I believe it's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of, of, of the gospel of repentance is that you're not just forsaking something, you're turning to something better. Something more beautiful. And friends, the truth is, the only way we will ever be set free from the captivity of a besetting sin is we find something that gives us a stronger affection towards it. That's the gospel. The beauty of of, of Jesus. And it's the only way we'll ever truly repent of anything is to find that greater beauty to be drawn into, to see his grace, to see the wonder of his steadfast love. And real rich repentance not only leads you away from something, but it leads you to something better. To bring this into focus, I want us to see what what happens in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, because it's really, really interesting. Basically what happens is this. It says, on the stairs of the Levites stood, and it lists a group of guys. And so if you'll remember back in in Nehemiah chapter 8, one of the things they did before this great festival of booths took place was they built a platform outside of the water gate. It was kind of the, the town square, if you would. And there were some people on a platform, and then there were some people on the stairs, and then there was the general population kind of down, if you would, on ground level. And we're back to that structure again. And so there's a group standing on the stairs. Then if you press in, it talks about then the Levites, it names another group, it says they stood up and they blessed the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. So you have these two groups, one group that's standing on the stairs, one I believe uh, that are standing on the platform, and they're kind of leading this repentance, if you would, this time of repentance, this prayer, back and forth between confession and praise, confession and praise. When I was in high school, we used to do these things called pep rallies. Did any of y'all ever have pep rallies in your high school? Do they still do pep rallies, y'all? 
They, 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 okay, still a thing. I, I graduated from R.B. Stahl High School, class of 79, okay? And one of the things that pep rallies we would do is, you know, they'd, they'd bring all the students into the gymnasium and whatever team it was that we were helping try to pep up would, would sit on the stage. And they'd bring the seniors and juniors in and sit them on one set of bleachers. And they'd bring the freshmen and sophomore in and, and, and sit them on the other set of bleachers. And there was almost always this really weird thing that they would do is start a chant. And this group on this side would chant, we got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? And then the other, and we'd see who would be the loudest. I've even seen that at football games sometimes. I don't know what that was about. But, you know, we did it. And um, this is kind of, if you've ever been in an environment like that and experienced something like that, this is kind of what's going on here. You got these Levites that are leading kind of confession. You got these Levites that are kind of leading the praise time. And there's this movement, this rhythm of repentance that's found beautiful where both confession of sin is taking place. And the praise of God is happening together. There's this movement together, this back and and forthness. And uh, chapter, uh, verses, excuse me, 5 through 15 put on an incredible display of the the praise of God that's so essential to rich, real repentance taking place. And the first thing that I want you to see that they praise God for was his being the life-giving creator. Look at verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heavens and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that are in them, and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worship you. If you say, hey, Joe, Okay, I, I wouldn't really know where to, to kind of begin, you know, this process of repentance. Well, I would say start with praise. I know you're saying, well, I'm dealing with sin, but start with praise. Start with recognizing who you're talking to. Start, start with honoring the one that, that you're speaking to. And you say, okay, well, where would I begin doing that? Well, begin at the beginning. Begin at the very start. Begin where your life began, in the mind of God. You, you, you praise God for being the creator, the life-giving creator. See, we need to be reminded about that in our own lives from time to time so we could be drawn to confession and we could be drawn into repentance. We need to think about God is the one who, who has given us what the Bible describes as our wonderfully unique lives. You know, there's this really cool little portion of your brain that's at the, the back of your head, the stem part of your brain, just before you get into the stem down there, called a medulla. And one of the things that the medulla does is the medulla sends a, a signal to your heart to beat. Beat, 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 beat. If it didn't, here's what would have to happen. You would have to think cognitively, and you would have to tell your heart. You know, like you, you have to tell your, your, this muscle to contract to do this. You, you send us do that. You would have to tell your heart to beat. Could you imagine walking around all the time, beat, 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 You don't have to do that because God has created a process in you that does that automatically, takes care of that for you. There's also in your medulla a signal that comes that tells your body to breathe. Or you would have to walk around all day and say, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, beat, 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 inhale, exhale. That's what your life would look like. 
But God has wonderfully designed your body with processes that are masterful in their creation. When's the last time you just stopped and praised God for your kidney function? For your heart beating? For the breath you take? And those things being natural that you don't have to force them? God did that for you. And see, if you're wondering, where do I start praising God as I enter into confession for repentance? Just start that he's, he's the one that's given you your life. And praise him for, for, for those things. You're, you're wonderfully made. You're not in control of all those things. Begin at the beginning of praising God. And, and you'll, find, you'll find power in that praise. The second thing that they praised God for was because he is the righteous promise keeper. Righteous promise keeper. He was the first promise keeper, and he is the best of keeper of promises. God always keeps his promises. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram, brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Parasite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. See, God made a promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve sinned and all of creation was broken, what we call the, the, the fall, God in Genesis chapter 3 made a promise that he would send through the seed of of a woman, a deliverer, a deliverer from sin, a deliverer from this brokenness, a redeemer, a savior. God made that promise. And in this passage that we're reading in, in Nehemiah about that Genesis 12 covenant, we, we're seeing God keep his promise through his, his commitment to Abraham, this covenant that he, he makes with Abraham. And we see this over and over again. God doing this, keeping his promises, keeping his promises. And even though I didn't make a blank for this, one of the other things that God did in this section of Scripture that I want to point out is, as he drew Abraham to himself, he draws us to himself. We, we, there's nothing in us that draws us to God until he first draws us, until he initiates a relationship with us. He did that with Abraham. God looked and saw Abraham and called him out. See, God is the one who awakens. If you have, if you have a moment in your life where you were uh, tending towards repentance, like these folks were Nehemiah were doing, it was because God drew them there. God needs to draw us regularly into repentance. He seeks to do that for our own good. Because he wants us to bring glory to him. Jesus said in John 6, 44, it's not going to come up on the screen, but in John 6, 44, Jesus said that no man could come to him unless the Father drew them. You wouldn't even be here today if it wasn't for the drawing of God. You wouldn't know Jesus if God had not drawn you, just like he did with Abraham. So you can praise God for that. A, a, a third thing that you can praise God for that we see here in this passage is they praise God for being their deliverer from captivity, from delivering them from the captivity of their enslavement and the sin that had brought that on. Look at, look at verse 9 with me. It says, and you saw the affliction of your fathers, excuse me, of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land. 
For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. There's this, they're going back and repeating a brief history of their nation. They're just moving back. They start with Abraham, then they talk about how God delivered them from the captivity in Egypt, that 400 years of slavery there. And one of the things that this tells me is when we enter into uh, this season of repentance in our own lives, and we're in uh, this season of, of confession, that part of what we need to do is get historical. We do need to look back. Now, we don't need to live in our past. We don't need to stay stuck in our past. But we need to remember the past. Or as the philosopher George Santianus told us, that those who forget the past are basically condemned to repeat it. We don't want to repeat past sins. We want to, we want to reflect on how God delivered us from that. It's too many of us stay stuck because we don't do that. We, we have forgotten what, what God taught us a month ago. How many of you love hearing Proverbs 26, 11, just before lunch? Don't you love Proverbs 26, just before you're thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch? As the dog returns to his vomit. It's, it's, it's in God's word. As the dog returns to his vomit, so does the fool to his folly. We forget too quickly. And God, we need to, we need to be reminded don't ever forget where God has delivered you from. You know, sometime uh, ago, uh, I don't remember what year it, it happened, but there was a season which God led our church to get real deeply involved in recovery ministries. And we used to be home to a Celebrate Recovery. It's, we, we don't uh, have that uh, currently anymore. But during that time frame, especially early in, uh, some of us had to go for trainings and workshops to get trained on how to, how to bring that back to our church. And one of the things that uh, I was privileged to do would go to some of those and hear some incredible testimonies of people who God had delivered from captivity. And uh, they, they went on to write some of those out so they could be shared. And I remember reading one of the testimonies of one of the participants um, in Celebrate Recovery from Saddleback Church. And he was telling his story, and part of his story, he talked about what had gone on in the life of his son. And this guy had been a, um, uh, he had been a, a coke addict. He'd struggled with coke, uh, this addiction to cocaine, and it caused him to lead his family in and out of homelessness. Um, when his son was very young, uh, five, six, seven, eight, there was just this season that they were living out of their car. And he started, he told his story, and then he said, and I want you to see how, how deeply God delivers. He said, my son became a Christian. He's trusted Christ, and uh, he's uh, sharing Christ regularly on his high school campus now. He's in high school. And the other day, some of his friends, he was sharing Christ with them, and they started kind of mocking him, asking him questions about, you really believe that stuff? All those miracle things? You know, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that, that you know, that uh, the, the Red Sea stuff, the part, you, you believe that? You believe Jesus really can turn like water into wine? And right there he stopped and he said, oh yeah, I definitely believe that because I've seen Jesus turn cocaine into a house payment. 
I've seen him set my daddy free from this addiction to now he's able to keep a job and we have a home. I've seen Jesus do that. See, we need to see, we need to look back and see those places where Jesus delivered us. And we need to thank God as part of our praise leading us to confess joyfully whatever sin we we find ourselves struggling with once again. Because he is our deliverer. He moves us out out of captivity. It's an incredible thing. A fourth thing that we need to praise God for is this, that we see here. Is they praise God for providing wisdom for living. For living in a broken world. For living in a land uh, filled with people who were really pagan and immoral. And and people who were just filled with wickedness. Look at, uh, starting in verse 13. It said, you, God, came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them, the pe- his people, from heaven. And you gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. See, they're praising God for sending the commands, for giving them his teaching. See, they, they knew that they were in a land that was inhabited by uh, some people of incredible wickedness. They lived, uh, they lived in a land with the Canaanites. And the Canaanites, uh, even, even for, uh, I know we look at the world and we think, oh my gosh, it's just, it, it's fallen apart. It's completely immoral. It's, it's just gone, gone crazy. And in so many ways, I would agree with you. But what I haven't seen in our world recently is a people group who part of their worship would take their living children, their small babies, and they would throw them into a furnace that was red hot with fire as a way of worshiping their god, Molech. That was the land in which the people of God lived. That kind of thing was going on. And so they were thankful, they were praising God here for his word that told them how to live differently even among a people like this. How to live in a culture that was decaying around them and falling apart. God taught them how to avoid the entanglement and captivity from those things. He he taught them how to live and be salt and light, if you would, among a very decadent and, and broken people. And God does that for us today. That's why this book, that's why we need it. We need to rely on this book. Because it it shows us how to to live as a people that are like aliens in a foreign land. And if you ever feel like that, it's because as a follower of Jesus, you are. You you, you and I are, and God has given us this. And we need to praise him for that. We need to praise him that he's given us the gift of his word. We need to praise him that he's given us the gift of his spirit so that we uh, we can stand against temptation. That we have strength to overcome that. That we need to thank God that as he did for those in the wilderness, he supplied all of their needs. And God has promised he'll supply all our needs from his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. We need, to, we need to praise him for that as we enter confession. And so they, they praise God and they confess and they praise God and they confess. And in their confession, they, they had encountered the word of God. We talked about that. That was kind of how they began their day. And they start agreeing with the words that they had heard. 
where sin was pointed out. They come and they begin agreeing and they begin confessing while they praise. This movement back and forth. And I want you to see some of the things they confessed. One of the first things they confessed was that rebellion always leads to captivity. They, they confess this. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. And it says it again, but they stiffened their neck. Friends, if the Bible repeats itself with the same phrase that close together, pay attention. It says, and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Here what they are doing is they're confessing that there is this kind of cycle in their, their own hearts that dates back to uh, their people generations before that always wants to walk them back into ca- captivity. It's this spirit uh, of rebellion, a heart that wants to rebel, a heart that reads God's word and comes up with reasons why I shouldn't have to do this. Now, sometimes we don't say it that blatantly, but we live our lives that blatantly. Why, I, why this won't work for me? Why I'm the exception to this? Friends, can I tell you? You're not that exceptional. You're not so exceptional that you're the exception to God's word. Believing that is what kills us, what, what draws us away. So they confessed that this rebellion existed in them and that they, they at times willfully chose to step out from under the protection of God. So much so that they point out here as they're thinking about this and they're confessing it, what it did was it brought God's people to a place that they were willing to go back into slavery. They were saying, yeah, that was great. Those beatings were great. Making, making bricks without straw, that was good stuff, man. Don't you? See, here's the deal. When you let a spirit of rebellion find traction in your soul, one of the first things it does is it brings your heart back to desire evil. You don't even see it. You don't even know what's happening. But when we willfully choose to rebel against the clear teachings of of the scriptures, one of the things that we do is we lose the protection of God because he's going to draw us back to him. And sometimes he gives us this taste. Look at what the scriptures say. Well, it's not going to come up on the screen. You can go back and look at it when you get home. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 says this, For rebellion is as bad as the sin of witchcraft. Some translations say divination. And stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. And they confessed that that's what they had seen in their own tendencies and that of their forefathers was this this spirit of rebellion. And they they say, God, we agree with you. That's destructive. We agree with you, God. The next thing that they confessed is they confessed God's greatest self-revelation. They confess this as, as truth. Look at, verse, look at verse 17. In verse 17 they say, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who you brought up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. Now we looked at, several months ago, we looked at... Uh, a passage out of Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34 is a moment in time when Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving the commandments from God. And Moses said to God, I want to see you. God, I want to I see what you look like. And God says, Moses, if you see my face, you'll die. I, I love you too much to let it happen. But here's what I'll do, Moses. I will put you in the cleft of a rock. And when I pass by, 
I'll let you see my back. And so God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock. But while he's passing by, God makes a clear and direct declaration of who he is to Moses. He he not only wants Moses to to know what he looks like as he's passing by, but he wants Moses to know his heart. And so God tells Moses, he's revealing himself to Moses, and he says this in verse 6 and 7. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is God himself speaking. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now that verse does go on to say that he will deal with, he will judge sin. But this is primarily the heart of who God is. And there was this great false impression of God, this lie about God that had come to be known in the New Testament. And it it pervades Christianity today. Most people, when they think about the God of the Old Testament, what they think about is, oh, this was a mean dude. He was harsh. He was relentless. He was unforgiving. Folks, that is not the God of the Old Testament. It's not God as he revealed himself. It's not God as he, he demonstrated himself. He's the God of love, compassionate, long-suffering. Even when the whole nation rejected him and turned from him, so much so that they worshiped, they wanted to create this thing out of gold that they, they could worship that would lead them back into captivity. God did not completely forsake them. He could have wiped them out. In fact, he, he said something to Moses about it. I may just wipe them out. And Moses said, please don't, Lord. The Bible says God relented that day. Verse 19 moves us to something else in their history. Look at it with me. It says, and you, God, in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. They're praising God for for what he didn't do here. The pillar of cloud led them in the way they did not depart from and, and by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. When was the last time that you paused to take a look back at the history of your life and see God's provision and thank him, praise him for that? You know, one of our great tendencies uh, is not to stop and count our blessings. One of our, our great tendencies, and, and everything in our culture really pushes us this way, one of our great tendencies is to spend time thinking about what I deserve. What, what I think uh, I, I deserve. You know, I think I, I, think I deserve a, a shiny new car or, or a new truck. I, I, I think I, I deserve, you know, to be an owner of my own business, to be, to be the boss. I think I deserve, you know, uh, an annual you know, two-week trip to Disney and, or trip to the Caribbean or, or, or wherever. I think I deserve, you know, whatever size my house is. I think I deserve a 1,000 square foot more, whatever it is. Our hearts kind of are drawn to thinking of what we deserve, and it distorts our soul in great ways. And then what happens is we, like the people in Nehemiah's day, we encounter the Word of God. And God's Word tells us what goes on in our hearts. It, it tells us the truth uh, about our hearts because nothing's hid from him. 
It, it tells us about the cruelty in our imagination. It tells us about our anger fantasies. It, it, it tells us about our self-centeredness, our thoughtlessness, or our immoral thoughts. It tells us about the ugly greed or contempt for others or coveting what others has. See, God sees all that in you and in me. He sees all that. And his word tells us that if we really got what we deserve, what would it be? We deserve death and we deserve hell. That's all we deserve. That, that's, that, that, that's it. But that's not what God gives us. God holds back his judgment, this tells us. He gives us a taste of it, but only to draw us to himself. He doesn't wipe us out. And that's what they're confessing to God. They say, God, we see that about you. We agree with you. We should be toast. But you and your mercy and your grace, God, you, you love us. You forgive us. Verse 22 says, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Ah, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and they possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. It was a, an amazing, miraculous story. Really, that's the story of the book of Joshua, if you want to go back and look at that, that part of their history. It, it, God would bring them into conflict with armies that were much mightier than they, uh, trained mercenaries, really, even. And they were very unexperienced at war, and God gave them victory after victory after victory. When was the last time you stopped and looked back at the victories God gave you? The victories in your life. As, as a way of praising God, as a way of uh, engaging in repentance, praising him as part of confession, agreeing with God that that promotion you got, God gave you. That new contract you got, God gave you. That new job you got, God gave you. That God blessed you, that award you got, God gave you. God, that God gives these good gifts, that God was with you, that his favor was upon you. Do you, do you pause as, a, as an act of repentance to praise God for that when you start thinking that you're doing it on your own. That's what they were doing here. And they thanked him. Maybe for the very first time. I want to jump past some verses and, and jump to, to verse 32 with you because this is where they start that journey back towards being really personal about pointing things back to themselves. So in verse 32, we read this, now therefore, and this is where the personal pronouns start to change. Our God, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us and upon our kings and our princes and our priests and our prophets and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. They're talking about that, that season of captivity. Verse 33, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. They're saying, God, what we're facing, our, our, our struggles, what we're facing, you have been righteous in, in that. For you have dealt faithfully and we 
have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amidst your own great goodness that you gave them and in the the, the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. This is where repentance always has to bring us. It has to bring us to this place of it being personal. We have to see that it's not about everyone else. It's me and me, oh God, standing in the need of your grace and and your mercy. It's me, God, that I'm the one in need of this. And as God's people, we need to confess this. And we need to do it in the context of praising God, seeing him for who he really is, because that really is the only place, uh, the only context where uh, confession would not kill us would not wipe our souls out is when we see it in the light of who God is. And that's why Jesus, when Jesus began his ministry, he told those who would would hear him, this was after John was put in prison in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Jesus went into all the region of Galilee proclaiming, proclaiming the good news of God. And this is the way he proclaimed it. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Repent. And believe the good news. Repent. Turn away, confess, do it in a context of praising God, believe that God is good. This confession and repentance and and confession and repentance. This is who God is. This is the, the rhythm. And so he draws his people back. And Jesus said, repent and believe that God sent his son. That God is always patient. That God is always ready to restore us out of captivity, out of our rebellion. Through this rhythm of confession and praise. That this is God's call. And so here's what I want us to do as, as a way of closing today. I, I want us to, to just take a moment. And I want us to, to, to praise God in prayer. And I want to give the Holy Spirit a few moments to speak to you to me about anything that we need to confess before the Lord. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to just bow your head in prayer. And I want to read a psalm of praise to you about who God is. And I want you to receive it prayerfully. And then I want to give some moments of silence for the Holy Spirit to do whatever work in us that he wants to do. So that there is this praise, the context for true confession. So pray with me, if you would. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. Lord, you are faithful in all your words and all your works. Lord, you uphold all who are falling, and you raise up all who are about down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give us our food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Lord, you are righteous in all your ways. You're kind in all your works. Lord, you are near to all who call on you, to all who come to you in truth. You fulfill the desires of those who fear you, and you hear our cries and you save us. Lord, you preserve all who love you.
My mouth will speak praise of you, O Lord. And with my body, I will bless your holy name forever and ever. That's who God is. Now let God's spirit speak into your heart and bring to your mind anything, any sin, any hurt, any habit, any hang-up that you're still finding captivity in. Just confess it. Agree with God that that's not for you from him. Spirit, we know that your word compares you to the movement of the wind. And we hear that wind moving in this building even. And we know, Holy Spirit, that you are present with your people at all times. We're two or more gathered in your name. You have promised to be there present powerfully. And so we come having seen in your word, God, who you are. And Spirit now giving you an opportunity to point out any evil that finds its traction in our hearts so that we can confess it, agree with you, God, it's not from you for us, that there's something better from you. And so, Father, in these moments, we just want to run to you. We just want to run to our Father God who loves us, who is forgiving, who is long-suffering, who is tender and merciful. We want to run to you, Father, in worship, in confession. So we come now in these moments as we close our time together, running to you as our Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.